As we come to the Word this evening, please open your Bibles to Psalm 111. Psalm 111, I will be reading Psalm 111, 112, and 113. Psalm 111, verse 1, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart, in the company of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has given food to those who fear him. He will remember his covenant forever. He has made known to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. They are are upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Psalm 112, praise the Lord, how blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light arises in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. It is well with the man who is gracious and lends. He will maintain his cause in judgment, for he will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. He will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is upheld. He will not fear. Until he looks with satisfaction on his adversaries, He has given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. The wicked will see it and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Then our psalm for this evening, Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is enthroned on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. With Psalm 113, we come to the first psalm of what is called the Egyptian halal, that is the uh, praise that was sung specifically with regard to the 
saving, God saving his people out of Egypt. We see that described particularly in chapter 114, and it goes through chapter 118. It's said that these were sung by the Jewish people on various festival days, and in particular at the Passover. You'll notice that in these three psalms, we have a a similar phrase, praise the Lord or praise Jehovah. In Psalm 111, we're told to praise Jehovah, who is the faithful Redeemer. In Psalm 112, we are told that those who are God-fearing, righteous ones are those who praise Jehovah. And now as we come to Psalm 113, we come to a psalm which describes for us that we are to praise the one who is both transcendent, that is very high, and who is imminent, who is very near. The psalm breaks down easily into three parts, each with three verses. We see in the first three verses, our most worthy service. We see in the next three verses, four through six, our most high God. And then in verses seven through nine, our most humble sovereign. Spurgeon, in introducing this psalm in his Treasury of David, wrote this. This psalm is one of pure praise and contains but little which requires exposition. A warm heart full of admiring adoration of the Most High will best of all comprehend this sacred hymn. Let's pause and ask that God would give us such hearts even as we come to this psalm this evening. Let's pray. Our Father, our hearts are oftentimes cold and dull and distracted. And so we come and ask that you would unite our hearts, that we might fear your name, that is, that we might praise you acceptably, Grant unto us admiring hearts filled with adoration for you. And by your spirit, we might understand this psalm. By your spirit, I might be able to explain it and apply it to all of our hearts for the glory of your name. And we ask this in the name of our glorious Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We come then to our first point, our most worthy service. Our most worthy service. Verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 113. Well, what is that service that we are to render? Well, it's obvious, isn't it, from the, the very first verses? Uh, praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is to be praised. Pretty obvious, isn't it, exactly what the psalmist is telling us we ought to do? We are to praise. To praise is to boast, to lift up, to highlight. It describes a deep thankfulness. It can be used, the word, to describe a satisfied, uh, 
lauding or uh, or praising, describing, uh, acknowledging a superior quality in the one who's being praised. The word blessed, blessed, let the name of the Lord be blessed in verse in verse 2 is a word which is closely related to the word kneel, I believe, uh, which is a posture of humility, a posture of, of acknowledging one greater than one before you, honoring them. One lexicon said, to bless is an acknowledgement that the person addressed evidently possessed power for abundant and effective living. This address becomes a formalized means of expressing thanks and praise to this person because he has given out of the abundance of his life. Now, the question is then, who are we to praise? Who is to be blessed? Well, again, it's obvious. It's Yahweh. It's Jehovah. It's the Lord. It's that one who is the unique God of the Scriptures, that one described in chapter 111 who, who was behind that great redemption that took place, that faithful redeemer of his people. And it is his name in particular, praise Jehovah, praise the name of Jehovah, and those really in Hebrew parallelism are similar, are, are used for the same. The name of Jehovah is to speak of his reputation, his character, his being. In Psalm 111, his, his name is spoken of in verse 9. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. He is Great, he is set apart and he is to be feared. Why? His rep- this is his reputation because he's fulfilled his righteous redemption for his people. His name stands for his righteous or glorious reputation. In Psalm 115 in verse 1 in this same section, we read, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. For your mercy and your loving kindness. And, and here the name is for the very person, the very being. And so in Psalm 116, three times in verse uh, 2 and 3, or excuse me, verse 4 and verse 13 and verse 17, speaks about calling on the name of the Lord. It's not transcendental meditation, just saying the name over and over and over, and somehow that's supposed to do me some good but it's actually calling upon him. So to speak of his name is to speak of him. It's to speak of his attributes. It's to speak of his reputation. The name of Jehovah, then, is is God's revelation of himself in his word and his acts. That's a word to praise. Or to praise the God who has revealed himself to us. In the way that he has revealed him to us, he has revealed himself to us in keeping with his revelation of himself. We could not know God, he is so great, unless he had chosen to reveal himself to us. And he has. And so the response then is one of praise. It's the one of blessing him. It's the one of, as one man said, heaping of, uh, heaping of benedictions, speakings well of him, heaping of praise upon him. That's our worthy service. We are to serve him by praising him. 
But then, secondly, in this first point is, well, who should be doing that? In this particular psalm, the focus is upon the servants of Jehovah, verse 1. The servants of Jehovah. Now, that may refer to the Levites who were specially servants or ministers who worked in the tabernacle and later in the temple. In Psalm 134, in verse 1, it says, Behold, bless Jehovah, all servants of Jehovah, who serve by night in the house of Jehovah. And so those servants are specifically those who labor in the worship of God. We would call them ministers. But also this term can be used of all of God's people. It's not just exclusively for those who have a set-apart role, but it's for all of God's people. And Isaiah, God speaks through Isaiah in this way to his people when he says, No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. Every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of Jehovah, and their vindication is from me. That is, all of his people whom he is protecting, whom he has delivered, who are his special people. His servants. Well, that's why I call it service, right? Because that's what servants do. Servants serve. And so these servants are to serve God by bringing praise to him. Now, you notice I, I said in, in, in my heading, our most worthy servants. You say, well, you see, that's just Old Testament there. Well, in fact, this is applicable to every one of God's people, even still today. For though we are not Levites and we don't come to a tabernacle, we do come to the one true and living God. And like Paul and Peter, who were servants of the living God, we are part of the priesthood of believers. All of God's people now are priests to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to him. So all of us then in this way are to serve him. All of us are to be those who engage in this worthy service of praising God. Now, we could find in the Psalms places where it speaks of the whole world order praising God. We can find places in the Psalms where all of his creatures are to praise him. All human beings whom he has created are to praise him, but especially those who are his redeemed servants are to praise him. Those who are described in Psalm 112 as the acceptable worshipers of God who are to praise Him are those who fear the Lord, who bow to Him and acknowledge Him and serve Him. So the service to render praise, bless the name of Jehovah. Those who are to serve the servants. Thirdly, how should we praise? How should we fulfill this praise. Well, the focus here is with our lips, with our with our, our speaking out, we're to be making these things known, blessing, praising in a public sort of way, in, a, in an open sort of way. But it's not just saying some words, some nice words about God. As I've already indicated just by reading it and saying it over and over again, there's a lot of repetition here in this opening part about praising Him and blessing Him Six different times, just in these first three verses, it's talked about doing this. And Calvin uh, picks up on this, as, as do a number of commentators, but Calvin said it well when he said this. If we consider how cold and callous men are, and take out the word men, put your own name in there, 
If we consider how cold and callous men are in this religious exercise, we will not deem the repetition of the call to praise God superfluous. We need to hear it over and over again. But the repetition, he also says, could be an emphasis on perseverance. In other words, keep going. Keep doing this. Don't stop doing this. And then Calvin adds as well that if this this repetition not only emphasizes the fact that we need to hear this, we need to be reminded, and we need to do it with perseverance, but we also need to do it with ardor, with vigor, with zeal, with energy. God's servants are to lead the way in this praising of Jehovah. So we are to do it with zeal. We are to do it eagerly. We are to do it uh, repeatedly, consistently, constantly. But then he goes on because he says, well, when should we praise? Is this just a, a one-day event? Is this something we just do when we gather together on Sundays that we're to, to uh, come together and do this? Well, notice what he says in, in verse 2. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. Well, from this time, it kind of sounds like, well, he's just talking about a generic time, that era, you know, from that era when God helped them in whatever trials they were going through from that kind of a time frame, they should begin doing that. But literally, the word could be translated, the verse could be translated this way. Blessed be the name of the Lord from now until forever. When should we do this? Right now. There's no other qualification. There's no other description given at this point. Right now, whatever now is, it's the present. And that present now became past, and there's a new present, and we're still spending. That's now past, and we're supposed. It's now. And then, unto forever, or until forever. This should mark the rest of our lives, and should mark us, and certainly will mark us when we get to heaven. We see that in the book of Revelation, in chapters 4 and 5 where they're gathered around the throne and praising the one who sits on the throne in the Lamb. So what should we do? Who should be doing it? How should we do it? When should we do it? And then finally, where should we do it? From the rising of the sun to the setting, the name of Jehovah is to be praised. Well, this is an interesting phrase, and we think from the rising of the sun to the setting, we think of time. But it literally says from the east of the sun to its entrance. So it's talking about the places in one sense. Yes, it's talking about a day, but it's talking about from the place where it began to the place where it ends. In other words, everywhere the sun, sun's rays hit the earth. And even when there's clouds, they still hit the earth. Some of that radiation always gets through. So the fact of the matter is, there is no place that this worship should not take place. Psalm 50 and verse 1 uses this phrase. The mighty one, God, Jehovah, has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting, from the east of the sun to its end, to its entrance. Now this may expand in one sense the who, because it may be saying anybody in that 
that sphere, but I, I think it's more wherever you find yourself, in whatever circumstance you find yourself, in whatever state you find yourself, whether it's the state of New Jersey or the state of confusion, wherever you find yourself, that's where you ought to praise Jehovah. Now, some of you remember a few months ago, or at least, well, maybe you won't, but a few months ago when, we preached, when I preached on Psalm 111, I said, what's the point? Praise the Lord. Well, how are you doing? Have you been praising Him anymore since we looked at those first two psalms? We come to it again. Here we've got it multiple times in one psalm. It's going to begin and end with that hallelujah. Calvin again says this, In extolling the name of Jehovah so highly, the prophet intends to show us that there is no ground for indifference. That silence would savor of impiety were we not to exert ourselves to the utmost of our ability to celebrate his praises, in order that our affections may, as it were, rise above the heavens. The psalmist wants us to engage in heaping these benedictions, these blessings, these praises upon our God. Now, brethren. You know, I can hear some of us maybe saying, well, when I get to heaven, I'll give myself to praising him and blessing his name day after day, moment by moment, when I have nothing else to do. As if somehow this was just to fill up the free space. And that's not the way the psalmist describes this, is it? Or I hear somebody saying, well, when the shelter-in-place orders are removed and life gets back to normal, then I'll praise Him. Or when I get back to work and my paycheck starts coming in again, then I'll praise Him. Or when my sickness is over, when school is done, when my children are saved, when dot, 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 you fill it in, then I'll praise Him. Now, all these are good times to praise Jehovah and to bless his name. And his name should be blessed even in those contexts, in all of those wonderful contexts. But as I emphasize, the psalmist says, do it now. During the pandemic. While you're unemployed. While your son or daughter is or are in the far country. While you're waiting for Mr. Right or Miss Perfect to come along, now and always, whatever may come next, however it may unfold next, we are to be praising the name of the Lord. That's what servants do that is their worthy service and in fact this is the most worthy service that we can engage in is worshiping our god praising our god by word and by life now i say by life because if you look back at psalm 112 when the psalmist tells the man who fears jehovah 
to praise him. He then goes on to describe his life and the blessing that God gives. And it's by that very life, and as we saw in Psalm 112, it parallels Psalm 111. Psalm 111 talks about God in his gracious and amazing works. Psalm 112 talks about the man who has that same character and is reflecting that character of God in the world. And so it's by living an upright life. It's by being gracious and compassionate and righteous like our God. It's in reflecting his character that we praise him, as well as by our words and by our lip. Brethren, this is how we ought to be praising him. We need to do it perseveringly, and we need to do it zealously, and we need to do it as humble servants out of gratitude for our God. And brethren, if you are a servant of Jehovah, and you have those in your home who, have, who are not, then you need to be an example to them of the joy and delight and blessing that comes to those who praise Jehovah. Not necessarily in external ways, but in internal ways. The psalmist says, Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever, from the rising of the sun to the setting. The name of the Lord is to be praised. That brings us to our second heading, Our Most High God. Now, in the rest of the psalm, the psalmist is going to give us some reasons for why the servants of Jehovah should praise him. He's going to give us some reasons for praising God. And he says in verse 4, first of all, because he is so high. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. How high is so high? How high is our God? Well, it says that the Lord is high above all nations. It says in the next verse that he sits on high. That is, he is enthroned. He has his throne up there. How high is he? Well, he's, he's higher and greater than all the nations. Whatever is impressive, whatever is excellent among all the nations of the earth, among all of mankind, corporately in various areas, whatever could be said, that's a great nation because they have great wealth because of their oil reserves or their gold reserves. Well, that's a great nation because of their economy, or that's a great nation because of the freedom that they have, or that's a great nation. Whatever you can say about any single nation, our God, it says, is greater. And he sits above all of those nations. He is a greater ruler. He has greater power. He has greater resources. He has a more vast realm over which he rules. He has greater glory. None of the men of this earth, in all of their power, with all of their resources, can thwart one, even one, of God's plans. They cannot stop his hand. They cannot change his mind. He does whatsoever he pleases among the sons of men. Paul tells us in his sermon 
in Acts 17 that he sets the boundaries of the nations. He says this far and no farther. The scriptures tell us in this psalm and elsewhere that God raises up and puts down others. He's the one who puts leaders in their place. That's why the scriptures call him the Lord of lords, the Lord of all the lords, the master over all the masters, the king of all the kings. Because he's above all the nations. Whatever you're impressed by, by the nations that you look around. Just stop and think. Let's just take one simple little nation. Let's call it um, Iran or North Korea. And, and they think, you know, we're going to make a big splash with our nuclear warheads. Ooh, nuclear weapons. That's pretty powerful. God's got supernovas out in the universe that are exploding and exploding. And these little, nu- these little nuclear weapons, they're nothing. God, in, in one thunderstorm, creates electricity and, and electromagnetic pulse and power that is mind-blowing. And then he's got storms on Jupiter that have been going on for centuries that are far bigger than even the Earth itself. And our God's glory is above the heavens. His reputation for his power and his greatness exceeds the heavens as far out as you can go. And whether he's talking about heaven as the, the atmosphere and he's above and beyond all the things that are taking place in the earth, or whether he's talking about his glory goes above the stars and the, the heavens that are, the, that are space, that we call space, or whether he's talking about the heavens where the angels dwell and where he has his throne, his glory exceeds all of those things. There's no limit to his glorious character. There is no limit to the, the displays. He's innumerable displays of his glory in his acts that he has created. He is so high, his glory so vast, that we can say in second place, it's incomparably high. Who is like Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord, our God, who is enthroned on high? Whose throne are you going to put next to his? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar kind of thought he had it pretty good. God said, okay, go eat grass. You want to talk, you want to talk, talk like a beast and think like a beast, like I don't exist? Go act like a beast. And for seven periods of time, he was humbled until he was humbled enough to stop and lift up his eyes and look into heaven and see the, true and the, the nature of the true and living God. Incomparably high. There is nobody to compare to him. He is above them all. He sits enthroned, ruling on high. Spurgeon has this poem. It's probably some hymn. Eternal power whose high abode becomes the grandeur of a God. Infinite lengths beyond the bounds where stars revolve their little rounds. The lowest step around your seat rises too high for Gabriel's feet. In vain the tall archangel tries to reach thine height with wondering eyes. I used to work on the 42nd floor, I think it was, of the World Financial Center. And outside one of my windows was the World Trade Center, 105 stories next to me. And I used to go over the window and just try to, try to look up. I couldn't even see the top. 
try to look up and see the extent of where God, God's glory is and where God's throne is, and it's just beyond comprehension. So much so that John Newton said once that at one stage in his religious experience, he was greatly distressed, not because he felt like God was going to punish him, but because God was so great, he thought he might miss him. But then that's where we come to our next verse. We've got this God who is so high, his glory is above the heavens. Nobody can compare to his throne where he sits. And then verse 6 tells us he's incomprehensibly observant. Not only is he so high, not only is he incomparably high, he is incomprehensibly observant. Verse 6, who humbles himself to behold in heaven and in the earth. One translator translated this verse this way, who is like Jehovah our God who dwells high and looks low in heaven and on earth. If you've ever done any mountain climbing and get up very high and you see with the clouds, you can get up where you're up over the clouds and you're looking down on the clouds. You say, wow, I'm really high now. I'm looking at the top of the clouds. You know what Mr. Welsh always says? The sun's always shining. It's just on the other side of the clouds sometimes. Well, when you're up there, you see that. The sun's shining, the clouds are below you, and everybody down below you is in rain, and you're thinking, wow, I'm really high. God is so high, he's looking down at where the Hubble telescope's looking out. God is so high and so glorious, he has to stoop over, as it were, what the the scripture says here, he has to humble himself to behold the things in heaven. He has to lower himself, as it were, to look down, to see the earth and all that's there. That's how high he is. Derek Kidner put it this way. He said, the very heavens are almost out of sight below him. That's how gloriously high. But you notice what he's doing from his high throne. He is beholding the things in heaven and on earth. He's not sitting up there unaware of what's going on. He's sitting up there observing everything that's going on. As it says, Jeremiah, it says to, through Jeremiah, he says, I'm a, am I a God who is near at hand? Am I not a God who fills heaven and the highest heaven? He's a God that, he's, he's incomparably great and he sees it all. There's nothing outside of his view. It says how great he is. Most high God, incomparably high, and yet, amazingly, he's observant, watching all that's going on here on earth and in heaven. Our our worthy service, our high God, our most high God, and thirdly, our most humble sovereign verse I just mentioned, that he humbles himself to behold the things in heaven and on earth. What condescension. What loving kindness. That such a great God would take notice of what's going on on this little planet and see everything that's going on here. Wait a minute. Because the psalm tells us there's something more. It tells us who he sees. 
Verse 7, it says he sees the poor. He sees the needy. He sees the princes, yes, but then in verse 9, he sees the barren. Our most humble sovereign not only sees all things, but he sees each individual. These verses are written in such a way to say he, he raises a better translation. I like translate, translating it this way. He raises a poor man from the dust. He lifts a needy one from the ash heap. He makes a barren woman abide in the house, a joyful mother. You see, he knows every single poor person. So who does he see? Well, I've indicated the poor. This is whom he sees. Literally, he sees a poor one. Those who are opposite of the rich. As I said, it's not a whole lot of exposition that needs to go on here, right? What's a poor person? We know what a poor person is. Somebody who doesn't have a lot of money. Somebody who doesn't have a lot of riches. Somebody who doesn't have a lot of resources. He can't go to someplace and find anything. The poor were those who generally had to beg. And these are poor in the dust. You don't get any lower. They are abject poverty. They are in the dirt. They're living, uh, if I were in Manila, I'd be saying, they're living on Smoky Mountain. That's the, that's the, the, the trash heap outside of town. And that's where they live, picking through trash. The people of, of Amos's day, it says, were so greedy, they even wanted to take the dust from the heads of the poor. Well, you can't get any more than that. You're going to take their dust away from them? What do they have left after that? Nothing. The dust was where you went before you died or after you died. It's as low as you could get, the poor. But then also the needy, literally a needy one. A needy one is somebody who has needs. Right? He has, he, he's just basically in need of all kinds of things. And, and then he's living in the ash heap or the rubbish pile. This is the person who has nothing to their name. They have nothing to meet their, their needs, but they have enormous needs. They, they need maybe it's daily food or they need resources to accomplish a task. We have people like this in the Bible. We see people like Gideon, who was, of the, who was small, a small family among a small tribe. Saul, who was, who was yeah, he was, he was really good looking, but he's out looking for donkeys and he can't find him. David, where was he when God found him? He was in the sheepfold, taking care of sheep. All these needy ones sitting in the ash heap with no recourse, no help. And then he speaks of the barren woman. And there's a lot of questions about why pick up the barren woman and why mention her here. Well, at the very least, it tells us that he's also concerned about women. It's not just men. Every one of his creatures God has his eye upon, men, women, Whatever their specific needs, whether it's an external need for resources, they're poor, whether it's a physical need, they're sick, or whether it's a woman who's unable to bear children. And in that, in that culture, that was, a, that was a picture of somebody who was actually to be despised and looked down upon because they couldn't provide for that, the name to continue in that family. 
We don't still carry that stigma, but at that time, especially in Israel and other, other cultures, that was extremely important that you had children to carry on the name, to carry on the inheritance, to carry on with the covenant line. So it was somebody who was despised and looked down upon by culture. And, and so maybe that's the point that the psalmist is trying to say. He even sees those who are despised by everyone else. And what does God do? Well, we already said that he's looking, but notice he's not just looking. He raises a poor man from the dust. He lifts a needy one from the ash heap. And then he doesn't just stop there and say, okay, well, I'll give you a nice house over here. No, he says, I'm going to put you with the princes. And notice it says he sits with the princes. Same word as he used to sit on high in verse 5. I'm going to give you a place of authority and nobility among the princes. Not just the princes of the world, the princes of the princes. My princes. My people. I'm going to make you to sit among the nobility of my people. And I'm going to make... This barren woman, I'm going to meet her at this specific need, and that woman's going to have a house to sit in, a household to manage, a joyful mother of children. He's not only mindful of them, he acts on their behalf in his providence, in his loving care. He comes and he lifts them up and provides for them, not because they are close to him, but because he comes down to them, meets them where they are, and ministers to them. What is man that God is mindful of him, and the son of man that he takes thought of him, that he cares for him? Nothing. Except God has set his love upon various ones. He loves his creatures. He loves his people, and he sets his love upon them, and he draws near to them, and he lifts them up. This reminded me of the verse in Psalm, 50, excuse me, in Isaiah 57 and verse 15, where God seeks to comfort his people again, who are about to go into captivity, and he hasn't forgotten them. Isaiah 57 and verse 15. For thus says the high and exalted one, who lives forever, whose name is holy, that is set apart one, pure, perfect. I dwell on high and a holy place and also with the contrite and with the lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly. He says, I come down and sit with them. And while he may not take every poor one of his children and give them a place of nobility within the culture, he might not come in and take care of all of their physical needs. He doesn't come to every barren woman and give them a multitude of children and give them a nice home to rule in or to to serve in. But he does dwell with them to take their spirits and lift their spirits up out of that dust, up out of that need, out of that ash heap, and to cause them to be revived and encouraged and strengthened. Why? Because he's caring for them. 
in His providence. He's talking about in Psalm 113 of His his gracious providence in which He comes and meets with people and blesses His people and cares for His people. Everything from that, that little incident where you said, oh, I need my keys, and you shout up that prayer, Lord, where are my keys? And you turned around and there they were in the basket. To the person who's at the end of their their finances and waiting for somebody to come in and foreclose on their house and pleading with God and a check comes in the mail. Where'd that come from? It's God in His providence meeting with His people, dwelling with His people and lifting them up to sit in the heavenlies. See, this is what God's. This is, these are the kinds of people that God chooses to be His people. This is a wonderful picture of the kinds of people that God chooses: poor people, needy people, barren people, people who are despised, people without resources, people who have nothing that they can do to make themselves better. Plumer said these things might surprise us, but these are the kinds of people that God chooses. Isn't this exactly what we see when we come to the New Testament? Think of the Old Testament, but what about the New Testament and the people that God chooses, the people that God ministers to, the people that He comes to and lifts up? The salvation of every sinner, Plumer says, is something far more wonderful than this. For He lifts them up out of this world and He lets them sit in heavenly places in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It wasn't too long ago, somebody, I believe it was Pastor Smith, made reference to this passage in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 29. Who are the people that, that God saves and that God cares for, that He makes His people? He says, for, you cons- for consider your calling, brethren, that you were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, that He might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before Him." You see, this is the picture that we have here before us, is God coming to those who have absolutely nothing to offer God. And God comes in His providence and in His saving grace, as we see it fully fulfilled in the work of God in the New Testament, coming and saving them, lifting them up. Paul, when he's describing this great, amazing work of God's salvation in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, and how God will show mercy on whom He will have mercy... And how God chooses and draws and elects and and brings them together when he gets all done about talking about God's amazing plan and, uh, and redemption. He says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And it's those who were dead in their trespasses and sins whom he has raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Oh, this is a picture of God's providence, but it's a far greater picture when we take and see that that 
same God is the one who comes to those who sit in the ash heap of this world, who sit in the dust of this world, and he saves them, calls them out of darkness into his marvelous light. God coming to man, coming from on high to minister to the lowly. Is this not ultimately seen in a, in fulfill, and ultimately fulfilled in the most glorious display of God coming to those who were in need? When the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the Word, which was with God, who was God, who, who was God and is God, who became flesh and dwelt among us. This one who, existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance of men, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those who are in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He humbled himself. He came down. He took to himself flesh. And he came down to those who were poor and needy, spiritually poor in the dust, dead in their trespasses and sins. And the God of glory came into our world and humbled himself that he might lift up and make us sit as nobles in his kingdom. That's what the psalm is picturing for us, what the psalmist has described for us, what God inspiring his, his psalmist to write it should say. This is our God. So here's our most worthy service, to praise this one, to bless this one. Here's our most high God higher than all the nations, sitting enthroned above the nations, his glory beyond the heavens. And yet he is also our most humble sovereign who humbles himself, as it were, to come down and to dwell among us and do good to those who are in need. And that brings me to my last point, which I haven't given you yet. And that's the most important point. What's the most important point? He tells us right at the end. Praise Jehovah. What could be more fitting than for us who are poor and needy in the dust, in the ash heap, barren and despised? What could be more fitting than to admire and to amaze, be amazed at his condescension, his lowering himself. We have so much fuel for praise, brethren, now. Praise him for his faithfulness. Praise him for his gracious, 
powerful, righteous redemption, as we read in Psalm 111. Praise Him that He redeemed you in the fulfillment of all of His purposes and His promises to His Son to give Him a reward for His suffering. Praise Him that He called you out of that darkness, that He drew you to Himself. Praise Him then also for the redemptive blessings that He gives to those who fear Him and who serve Him, how He cares for them and provides for them and watches over them. Psalm 112. Praise Him for His many undeserved, patently kind providences from God. Calvin said this, Since God superintends the ordinary course of nature, alters the current of events, elevates those of abject condition and those of ignoble extraction, those who have no nobility in themselves, and makes the barren woman fruitful... Since God has done these things, our sensibility is very, excuse me, our insensibility is very culpable. If you don't feel how gracious God has been to you and how blessed you are right now so that you don't have any reason to praise, he says that insensibility is culpable. It means that's a sin. If we do not attentively contemplate the works of his hand, We've sinned. Brethren, now, wherever you are, whatever your circumstances, you have so much. If you are a child of God, you have so much to praise God for. In his redeeming work, in his constant care over you, praise him. Praise his glorious name. Praise Him with humility on your knees before Him that you have received more blessings than you would ever deserve. Praise Him with zeal. Praise Him continuously. Praise Him wherever you are. Servant of God, this is our worthy duty. Our thoughts of God and His ways, I fear, brethren, are too small. I fear that's why we probably don't praise him as much as we should. We think too highly of ourselves and we think too low of him. I deserve better than this. God says, no. But I'm giving you exactly what I know you need. Praise him for his constant care. He made, Plumer says, all. He provides for all. He upholds all. He governs all. And therefore, let all unite in celebrating his glorious name. Servants of God, the the hymn writer says, your master proclaim and publish abroad his wonderful name. The name, all victorious, of Jesus extol. His kingdom is glorious and rules over all. God ruleth on high, almighty to save, and still he is nigh. His presence we have. The great congregation, his triumph shall sing, ascribing salvation to Jesus our King. Salvation to God who sits on the throne. Let all cry aloud and honor the Son. The praises of Jesus the angels proclaim fall down on their faces and worship the Lamb. 
then let us adore and give him his right. All glory and power and wisdom and might. All honor and blessing with angels above and thanks never ceasing for infinite love. Brethren, we have a psalm before us, a beautiful psalm of praise to guide us and to direct us how we can praise our God now and forever, wherever we are, from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same. He is most high. His glory is over the heavens. He sits in the heavens and he looks down upon the earth and he cares for you, his child. He hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't overlooked you. He knows exactly where you're sitting. He knows exactly what you're facing. He knows exactly what you're suffering. And he brings to you the comfort of his son who promises never to leave you nor forsake you, the great high priest who can comfort you, who can succor you, who can aid you, he can, who comes alongside of you. The psalm ends, praise the Lord. I began by reading a quote of Spurgeon. It's only appropriate that I should end with the same. The music concludes upon the keynote. The psalm is a circle, ending where it began. Praising the Lord from its first syllable to its last. May our life psalm partake of the same character and never know a break or a conclusion. Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us for our insensibility to your graciousness and your gifts and your providence. Forgive us for our low thoughts of you and our weak praise of you. Fill our mouths with praise that we might glorify you in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of the trials and struggles of life, in the midst of the blessings of life, that we would give all glory and praise to you, our most high God. And for those who know nothing of praising you, work in their hearts to show them their poverty. Show them their their despised condition. Show them, O God, how much they need such a Savior as the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would do this for the glory of his name and magnify his name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.